We're excited to have Mike Selden as the guest for today's episode. Mike Selden is the CEO and co-founder of Finless Foods. His background in biochemistry and molecular biology has played a big role in him dedicating his life to climate justice and science advocacy. He's always been very politically active and considers his work now to be an extension of that. Before co-founding Finless Foods, he was working at Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine in high-throughput cancer screening. His university research projects were twofold one focusing on fungal epigenics to solve food crises, and the other on the evolutionary biomechanics of the mantis shrimp. He was a high school chemistry teacher at Weiger International School in Taichung, Taiwan, where he ended up learning enough Chinese to become the co-editor-in-chief of China Smack, a website that translates Chinese news for the English-speaking world. He has also done work at New Harvest, a nonprofit forwarding research in the cell-based meat field. This was a live recording taking place at the Finless Foods office. So let's take a look. So we are at the Finless Foods HQ, and I'm here with Mike Selden, and we're about to jump in. Um, so first off, thank you for having us here. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I have a laundry list of questions, and I'm also very excited to be here. So, But before we get started talking about anything fish or anything cultured meat even, Tell me a little bit about your background and when you first heard of cellular agriculture. Yeah, so, you know, my whole life had definitely been uh, an environmental activist, political activist, and like worked in like a bunch of spaces um, electorally when I was a kid. I grew up in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, the one with the witches. And so uh, this always like environmentalism was always such a big thing for me and like animal welfare became a really big thing for me as like a teenager. Um, so I ended up like looking into science and ended up sort of like becoming a biochemist through like a convoluted series of like major changes. So I studied for my undergrad biochemistry and molecular biology. Um, I went to what's basically an agricultural school called UMass Amherst. And there I studied like fungal epigenetics. So like the way DNA moves. And I used that for like basically crop production and like pesticide like research. <clears throat> and... Um, the first time that I heard of cellular agriculture was in 2014. I read an article in The Atlantic called The Blood Harvest. And this article was about how we harvest blood from horseshoe crabs in order to use it in pharmaceutical QA. And because we needed so much blood, we were like destroying their habitats and killing these species that are like this basically fossil. They've like been the same for an incredibly long time. And, um, you know, scientists saw that this was a problem and started to create a, an equivalent to the blood that could be used in, in pharmaceutical QA, but that didn't require the crabs themselves. And so they were producing horseshoe crab blood outside of a horseshoe crab. And in my mind, I was like, well, if you can create the blood of a horseshoe crab outside of a horseshoe crab, couldn't you just do that for any animal product of any sort? And um, that's when the idea sort of got into my head. At the time, I was living in, in Taichung, Taiwan, and like I ended up moving to New York where I met up with New Harvest and like New Harvest was already super established but like this was a very new field like basically nothing existed it was like New Harvest, Modern Meadow, um, Mark Post and like more or less it um, but very soon after that Memphis Meats formed which was really cool to watch and the GFI formed which is really cool to watch um, and so you know like I started doing a bit of work with New Harvest and then eventually uh, was working at this hospital Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine ended up um, basically thinking that I wanted to do a PhD in this subject on a New Harvest grant because, um, you know, New Harvest takes like donor money, puts it towards like grants for people to do PhDs in cellular agriculture. 
and uh, ended up working a bit with Isha Datar, the new Harvest executive director, and through her met a bunch of investors. Um, and so I was went back to New York after like one long trip with her, like to, to Europe actually. And when I was back, my friend was like, so what happens if you drop this grant that you're probably going to take and do a PhD in? And I was like, well, they're very competitive. Um, so, you know, someone else will, will do the work if I don't. And my friend was like, well, then what's the point of doing it at all if it's going to get done either way? And I was like, that is a really good point. And he was like, what happens if, with all these investors and their money if you don't take it? I was like, I don't know, like an app or oil or I don't know what they do. Um, and he was like, well, why don't you do that instead and like take that money and direct it towards this deal that you think is super important? And I said, that's a really good point. So that's sort of when Finless Foods um, was born, essentially, back in New York. Um, from there, we like moved out to San Francisco, joined the Indie Bio Accelerator, raised a bunch of money, hired a bunch of really amazing people, built this gigantic lab, and I've been working on this uh, ever since. So it's been like two and a half years now, and it feels like it's been two and a half decades, uh, but it's been a lot of fun. That's cool. So, so tracking back a little bit, you said you were in Taiwan. What were you doing in Taiwan? Hmm. I was a high school chemistry teacher uh, at oh. an international school, um, which was really, really fun. You know, like teaching is a really awesome thing to do. Um, and like the, the, I used, I got the like privilege of teaching like a bunch of honor students who are really like incredibly intelligent and like really fun to work with. Um, and then from there I ended up like learning a bunch of Chinese and I became a Chinese translator for a bit. Um, and sort of like backpacked around China. I was like the co-editor in chief for a website called China Smack, which is now defunct. But at the time, what we did was we translated the news from Chinese into English and also translated the comment sections. And that was sort of the really important thing that we did so that like the West, like the English speaking world could really have a window into like, what's it like in China? Are they really that different from us? The answer is no, I don't think so. And so like the whole thesis of, of the company was just like, let's just make it so that like people can sort of see how similar we all are. And like the comment sections on their like news websites are total trash fires in the same way that ours are. And like, you know, we're not this like totally alien to each other thing. Like even like really basic stuff is very similar in a lot of ways. Wow. So that's cool. And maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but in the kind of strategy that you guys have for your company, is Asia um, and that region uh, a main focus? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we're a fish company and one of the big focus areas that we have is bluefin tuna. And 80% of the world's bluefin tuna is consumed in Japan. So Japan's a really important market for us. Um, and then China is obviously enormous. They consume an incredible amount of fish. Um, so we think that's super important. And beyond that, like China right now is going through a lot of like interesting environmental and political ideas that I think really tie into like what we do. They want to be uh, like food secure and like start producing things in country that people trust. They've had a bunch of like uh, scandals in terms of food contamination in the past and they're trying to like work through that. Um, and then also like uh, President Xi has really done a lot in terms of trying to advocate for environmentalism. To many Chinese people, like they sort of see that, they see the more immediate effects of like environmental devastation through like smog that sort of like cluttered their cities and they've been like, oh, we really can affect the environment in a negative way. We should really cut that out. And so, you know, they've like aggressively built out green energy and like aggressively uh, cut out like um, gas vehicles, moved towards electric scooters in massive numbers. And just recently, they've sort of put out this mandate that they want to reduce meat consumption by 50%. And so I think that we like address a lot of these issues. So I think China is actually really well suited to like wow. what we do. That's cool. That's very exciting. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about fish, but what is really the, the problem of fish? We hear about microplastics, pollutants, uh, uh, I guess colored shrimp and colored salmon. Mm. So what is the, the main problem with fish from a, a current 
and traditional farming technique. And, and that's called aquaculture, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aquaculture is really interesting. Um, I came into this company really like throwing a lot of shade at aquaculture, um, but we actually have gotten some uh, like really great partners with us that are aquaculture companies, and aquaculture experts. There's a lot of good that aquaculture does. I don't really feel that it does enough. Like I think that there's still a lot of room for improvement, but aquaculture's done a lot to like cut out the mercury and plastic that are found in wild caught fish. Um, aquaculture has also taken the strain off of the ocean ecosystem and tried to move it into something else. One of the biggest problems with aquaculture um, that we're trying to solve is that it just doesn't scale up fast enough. Every single year, uh, aquaculture production has increased massively. And it's basically almost a brand new field, at least on a mass scale. Aquaculture is like 30, 40 years old, whereas animal agriculture is this like massively old thing. And especially industrial animal ag has gone on for an extremely long time. <laughs> So, do you think that might be why FDA regulates fish, but not the USDA regulating that, for example? That's a good question. I don't think I know the answer. Actually, okay. um, I'd be interested to in seeing like what what happened there and why that split happened, but right. and how so, catfish got <laughs> looped into the other side. So. That actually, I do know. Uh, okay, there was um, <clears throat> basically my understanding is that there were a lot of. Uh, Vietnamese like uh, cheap catfish farms that were propping, uh, like, cropping up and they were like exporting their stuff to America. Oh. And um, <clears throat> so like the FDA has in its charter that it needs to protect the safety and security of the American food supply, whereas the USDA has that, but also must protect American economic interests. So they shunted catfish over to the USDA. So the USDA could basically create a system of, my understanding is it's like um, tightened regulation and tariffs to basically support the US cat farming industry and protect it from the Vietnamese one, which was you know, operating with much lower costs. So yeah, uh, that I know, but in terms of the actual split itself, I actually don't. Uh, but yeah, aquaculture has not um, fulfilled its promise of taking the strain off of the oceans that it has said. And part of that's because it's hard to scale up. Fish have like a long life cycle. The, the most efficient system we got right now in aquaculture is salmon. Throw salmon in the water and you're gonna take about two years for them to reach full slaughter weight. So. Although every single year we've increased aquaculture, and actually 2016 I think was the first year where 50% uh, of the salmon eaten worldwide is from a farm, but we've never been able to decrease the amount of wild caught fish that gets caught every year. We don't know what the market cap is for like any seafood. Every year we produce more and every year people just eat more. So aquaculture can't, it seems can't scale up fast enough to meet that demand and actually take strain off the oceans. Instead of waiting two years for an animal to grow to slaughter weight, our cells are like ready to go. Like we can seed a bioreactor and then spin it up to full speed if like it's a thousand liter bioreactor and uh, harvest everything from it in about three weeks. So it's just we can iterate faster, do experiments faster, and then also like be demand reactive and like actually scale up really quickly where demand is and scale down really quickly where demand is not. So we can sort of serve a bunch of needs in aquaculture that currently aren't being served. Um, on top of that, bluefin tuna, there's only one company that knows how to close the life cycle, and that's it, and they're in Japan, and they have a lot of trouble scaling up. Bluefin tuna are really finicky, they're really complex, they're huge, um, they're like the jaguars of the ocean. <clears throat> now, when we see kind of like those huge tuna, are those bluefin tuna? Or mm -hmm. is that a different, so <clears throat> maybe tell us a little bit about the different types of tuna. Yeah, so um, I'm going to sound kind of ignorant here because I'll admit I don't know a ton. Um, bluefin tuna, I know, is is red meat, and so it's very different from a lot of other types of fish. Um, and that's proven difficult for us in a lot of ways because most of the research that's been done in like fish cell biology and fish like EvoDevo is basically like in whitefish. Like the model organism for fish is the zebra fish, which is like this big and all bones. Um, and so moving our way towards bluefin tuna has been difficult. Uh, there's just not a lot of work to go off of. But bluefin tuna, when you try and throw them into aquaculture, they just don't do very well. 
Salmon is a really efficient system. They've got like 90% density in their nets. So like 90% of the space inside of a, a salmon net is salmon. Only 10% of that is wow. room, which is uh, amazing in terms of efficiency, but a moral nightmare, right? It's like incredibly cruel to these fish. Bluefin tuna, they can't get their density, as far as I'm aware, above 15%. So in the nets. In the nets, yeah. Wow. So it's like this massively inefficient system. You have to have these big open ocean nets. Bluefin tuna, like as a species, they travel in like massive schools all the way across the ocean. Like they cross the Atlantic Ocean, they cross the Pacific Ocean. They need a lot of space. And so there hasn't really been a good way to correct for that in aquaculture yet. Their life cycle is also extremely long. So <clears throat> when research first started being done, um, you know, we actually spoke with a, with a bunch of bluefin researchers at this point. When they were trying to aquaculture it, they ran into like a lot of problems. Like for example, there was about a decade long period where they couldn't figure out what was going on. The fish, they would grow up to a certain size and then stop eating and eventually die. And they're like, what's going on? They tried like all these different types of food and they weren't eating anything. It turns out that they weren't including enough DHA in the diet of the adolescent bluefin tuna. And so because they didn't have this good amount of DHA, their ocular nerves wouldn't develop correctly past juvenile stage. So basically, we didn't feed them the right stuff, their eyes never developed, they went blind and then couldn't see the food and just starved to death. Oh, wow. And that happened for 10 years. Like people basically just starved fish to death, blinded them and starved them to death. Right. And it's like, it's such a black box. Like you don't know what's wrong when they're not eating stuff because they can't talk about it. So it's, and they have such long life cycles that there's so many things that can screw up over such a long period of time. So for us, we're like, look, there's all these problems still going on in bluefin aquaculture. Um, they still have trouble scaling up. It's still a very slow process. It's still like four times more expensive than just getting it wild. Um, so for us, we're like, we can solve these things faster. Like, yeah, we can't create a fillet yet, but like we can iterate so much more quickly. Our cells like live and die in a matter of days, whereas their animals live and die in a matter of years. So they're ahead of us now, but I don't think they'll keep that lead. All right. And if I'm ordering a high-end type of tuna from like a nice sushi restaurant, either here or in New York or in Japan, is that bluefin tuna? Um, that's a good question. Probably not. Not. Uh, okay. <clears throat> there's a lot of shadiness in the bluefin supply chain. There is, it is very difficult to keep a consistent supply and to keep it on the menu. The bluefin supply chain itself is like not super well understood. Uh, if you ever try calling restaurants, they're not going to tell you where they get bluefin. They'll usually hang up. Um, a lot of this was because there was this really amazing documentary that came out called End of the Line. Um, if you or anyone hasn't seen it, heavily recommend it. Um, but basically, End of the Line was like, these restaurants are serving an endangered species. Uh, what is going on? And so people started like, basically harassing these restaurants and saying, like, what are you doing? You're serving an endangered species. So a lot of these restaurants that are high-end have to take bluefin off the menu. And the ones that have kept it now are like very wary of people asking questions because they're tired of being harassed. And so real sustainable restaurants have gotten rid of it. And the other ones are sort of like nervous about their supply chain. There's a good chance that the bluefin you're eating isn't uh, actually bluefin. And, and that actually applies to a lot of seafood. Any studies that have been done, like LA, I know there was a study done, and I think it was like 60% of the fish that was DNA tested from high-end restaurants wasn't the fish that it was advertised. And in DC, it was like 30-something percent of it wasn't what was advertised. So it's like, the problem here is that fish is really the last food we eat that is hunted. You know, everything else we grow inside of agriculture, it's a very like artificial system. We don't have a lot of control over the ocean. Like it just sort of does what it does and then we get what we can from it. So it creates a really unstable supply chain which ends in like uh, food mislabeling. So you guys went through IndieBio hmm. um, and, and I wanna track back to kind of uh, what you were saying about restaurants or food not being what it is mm -hmm. um, or what they say it is, the restaurants or suppliers. But 
Um, so you guys went through Indiebio. How did you meet your co-founder? Yeah, so uh, I get this question a lot because you know people are trying to start companies and like, oh, you've done a fairly okay job. Like this is actually working. How do you find a co-founder? Um, I have no idea. Brian and I met nine years ago in college, and he's just been my best friend basically. So I don't, uh, I don't have good advice for people trying to find co-founders. Um, I met Brian because uh, I'm two years older than him, and I was his TA in Bio 101. I very, very quickly realized that he was like way, way smarter than me immediately, and could have taught the class entirely without me immediately. Um, so the, when we took organic chemistry together, um, I sat next to him because uh, he's a genius, and so we just went from there. You know, there was a time where we like uh, didn't really see each other because I lived in Asia and he did not, so there was a bit of a barrier. But then when I moved back to the U.S., I moved to New York where he was living as well. And so Finless was born out of New York, mostly just because we were hanging out. Um, <clears throat> I had this idea for the company. Uh, him and I, he worked at a hospital near mine. I was at Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine. He was at Wild Cornell Medical College. So both kind of on the Upper East Side. I know real New Yorkers will like destroy me for saying that that's true. Um, but anyway, the we went out for actually the Impossible Burger, and I just sort of talked to him about this, and we were like having beers, and he was like, yeah, actually, this makes total sense. Um, here's what I would do if it were me, and like went through this whole tech workflow of like exactly what the company would be. And then I was like, oh yeah, your entire specialization is primary cell culture, which is exactly what this is. And I was like, do you want to just do this with me? And so brought him in, and uh, it's been awesome since then. And actually, we like still live together. We still share a car. We share a phone plan. We're like the the most married set of co-founders in the entire industry and, and co-founders should be married right apparently it is a lot like a marriage it is a lot like a relationship it's like a lot of like uh, the same principles of like you know conflict resolution like very much apply and like you know living together and working together uh it's it's been super fun actually i've really loved it cool so when did you guys decide to apply for indie bio we decided to apply to indie bio so we applied to batch four back um, at some point in 2016 and we ended up withdrawing our application because we didn't really feel that we were ready um, which is I think for the best we've now spoken with Ron Chigata since then he's like yeah you were not ready we're like we know so we then applied again to batch five so I guess that was uh, like January or February of 2017 and yeah they, they accepted us and they were like you need to move to San Francisco and we're like I guess that's that and just like packed up and came to the Bay Area IndieBio has been awesome for us. It was like an incredibly amazing experience. We gained so much through going through that program. We had like two offers on the table. We had a bunch of investors who were just going to give us cash in New York. And then we had the IndieBio offer. And the cash was like um, a, li a bit less dilutive. Like we would have retained more of the company. But I'm not sure we would have survived. Um, there's not a lot of like lab space for a like really early stage company in New York. There's this really beautiful space called Harlem Biospace that has like an awesome community and tons of really good stuff. But the problem for us was they only had one tissue culture hood shared among 12 companies. And we're like, well, we need that like 10 hours a day. <coughs> and so um, anybody was like, we'll give you your own dedicated tissue culture hood 24 hours a day. And we're like, sold, that's that. You came here instead. Wow. So you had a background in science and I guess a little bit of education too, like secondary education to, to be a teacher. Hmm. What was the process like to raise money? Have you ever done it before? How did you kind of figure out what to do or how to do it? Of yeah. course, IndieBio, I'm sure, has their, their uh, direction and mentorship program, but it seems like you guys were already talking to investors beforehand. So what was, in a very short answer maybe, like yeah. what was your strategy for that? You know, um, I would say we were really bad at it at first, and we got considerably better at it. I think once we had the realization that, like, you're not begging people for money, you're trying to find partners that you want to work with, everything got a lot better. Uh, I think people thought that we were, like, super desperate at first. We sounded sort of like beggars. 
But after that, we realized like it's not begging. It's like deciding who you want to be with, especially now that we're gearing up to our Series A, you know, that whoever we take in is probably going to take a board seat. Uh, and so this is someone that we need to really get along with. And so the process now has very much been like finding people that sort of share our vision for what Finless should be. Um, it doesn't need to be someone I agree with 100% on everything, but like they need to at least share the general idea of like what this company is and like how it should work. It's been kind of fun, actually. It's sort of just like going around to people and be like, do you want to be friends? Uh, do you want to be friends for like a long time and like work on a complicated thing together? Um, so yeah, it's been a lot of fun and it's just a lot of basically socializing and uh, science communication. So there are, there are a number of cellular agriculture companies and we were just at the Industrializing Cell-Based Meat Summit mm -hmm. where I think um, Eric from Memphis Meat, he said there's about 40 companies in the space now. Um, but you guys are really leading the space in terms of fish. I think that when people are starting to look at cultured meat companies, they see Memphis Meats, they learn about New Harvest, Good Food Institute, mm. and also Finless Foods. And so there are other companies also working on fish, but what does the IP landscape look like? Mm. That's a good question. I think a lot of companies aren't doing a ton in terms of filing IP. The whole industry is moving so incredibly quickly that a lot of people don't want to, you know, give away the directionality of the company and also want to give themselves a bit of room to pivot anyways. Um, it's complicated. I mean, some companies have started based on IP that they've found. We are one of the only companies that didn't come into this with anything. Like we came to IndieBio with basically like a pitch deck and a workflow and that's more or less it. Um, and a lot of other companies have like, you know, been spin outs of R&D from larger companies or have like taken IP from the public sector and like built that into a company. <clears throat> There's a lot of advantages to doing it that way. Um, with fish, there just kind of isn't much to go off of. Like you can read every paper on fish cell biology in a week if you want to. Um, and so we've had to do a lot of basic research here and are building that into sort of our, our IP portfolio essentially. Um, the, it's been interesting, like now there's this trend in investment in deep tech, which is sort of like a Silicon Valley or like investing rebrand of just basic research. Um, previously, basic research was really done in public universities because that was the only place where you could do like really basic things and public basic data, publish basic data. But, you know, with like intense wealth inequality comes like a lot of money being concentrated at the top in these large investment vehicles. And so investors have become um, more tolerant of risk involved in basic research. And so that's, you know, it's a great time to make a deep tech startup. Not a great time for science, I would say. I think public uh, like funding and, and public research is better. Um, but you know, the IP has sort of been following that model in terms of like we've built a lot of like the basic science into like the trade secrets that we hold and like the IP that we're filing. Um, yeah, so it's it's been an interesting like sociological thing to watch, I guess, or an economic thing to watch. I don't know if I don't. I would say it's probably not a good thing for for the world, but it's what we live in, and it's been uh, helpful for Finless in terms of getting funding. So to talk a little bit about the science, uh, when we are thinking of the cell culture process, and this is of course on a very high level, we have a bioreactor. And the bioreactor mimics the kind of the environment of an actual animal. So in the case of a cow, I think the temperature is around like 38.6 degrees Celsius. So mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, a lot warmer, but for fish, it's actually a lot lower. Is that right? Mm. And so how does that change the overall process of kind of creating tissue for a cow versus creating tissue for a fish. Is the temperature something that drastically changes the, the process hmm. uh, or even efficiency or scalability, anything like that? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so you hit the nail on the head. Like fish are considerably lower in terms of the temperature that the cells like to be cultured at. You are generally culturing fish cells around like 24 or 26 Celsius, so it's like a lot closer to room temperature, which is great. So that means that when we're pulling our cells out of incubators to work with them, it's actually um, not such a like frantic mess or like not such a rush because you're not worried about like temperature shock. You're not worried about like taking them out of very high temperature, working with them for a long time in low temperature, and then bringing them back. So that's like another variable. Our incubators are kept at a certain temperature, but that's really just to like create stability. Um, the fish cells that we work with are actually often very um, durable. They like can survive in like kind of a range of temperatures, which is not how a lot of other animal cells go. So there's like not only are we sort of like not really requiring the like increased heating that would be necessary in a lot of environments to culture this at large scale. But it means that with the experiments, we can actually take more time and like do them correctly rather than be like rushed, worried about like uh, cold shock or heat shock. Um, <clears throat> and so the other advantage I would say that we have over cow specifically is that like if you look at a steak, you've got all this like complex swirling of like marble and fat. The texture is very complicated. With fish, it's considerably simpler. It's usually just done in layers. So if you look at like salmon sashimi, it's just like muscle, fat, muscle, fat which makes this a lot easier for us in a lot of ways because if we build that, and even if we don't come up with any new tissue engineering techniques or don't use any sort of new technology, current tissue engineering has the tissue being formed in thin sheets. So if you just stack those thin sheets on top of each other, you can actually create a fairly lifelike facsimile of that, that striation, those like layers. Um, that said, we'd like to do better. We think there are like other avenues to travel down in terms of tissue engineering that we're pursuing. Um, but even if all those things fail, we can just go back to basics with, with sashimi and still create something that I think is fairly close to the real thing. Wow, that's cool. So in the future, we might be having this kind of layered fish that probably won't be too much different than what we have now. Yeah. And you know, one of the interesting things that we've been toying around with at Finless that I sort of would love to talk about specifically on, on your podcast, because like you are listened to by like pretty much everybody in the, in the industry, I sort of want to put this question out there, which sort of uh, plugs into this, which is we're all talking about creating like imitations we're all talking about creating like you know beef or salmon or bluefin tuna but if you look at the way that like vegan food and plant-based food has gone when things are trying to be imitations they generally don't do very well there are some exceptions to this impossible burger especially the new one is phenomenal um, beyond meat does a really good job with their burger um, but like a lot of other vegan imitations people are like yeah it's not as good as the real thing like or it's okay i'll eat it because it's vegan but like what we're trying to do is not market to vegans. We're trying to really make this something that meat eaters will eat. And so making this whole project something that is a project in comparison to me feels like a misstep because the, the bar that you're creating by saying, oh, I want to make something that's exactly the same. Um, that's difficult because there's a lot of psychology involved in like how is it exactly alike. I think the most successful plant-based products have been things that are new and that aren't like anything else anybody has ever had. So if you look at like Miyoko's, like the, the vegan cheese they've got going on, the point of it is like, this is cheese. It's not mozzarella. It's not Parmesan. Well, now they have mozzarella, but like whatever. Most of the stuff they put out is just new. And it made it into all these like lifestyle magazines and these cooking magazines because they were like, it's totally different. It's this new type of cheese. You don't have to eat it just because you're vegan. You should eat it because it's good. Or like Shizen, this like sushi restaurant in the city. <clears throat> Shizen is amazing. And one of the reasons I think they're so incredible is that they're not like, this is salmon, this is tuna. They're like, this is sushi. It uses the same flavor palette, but it's completely different from anything you've ever had. So instead of the bar being, is it the same? The bar is just, is it good? And so at Finless, you know, Bluefin Tuna is a really big mission for us, but we've been toying with this idea of like, how do we get people on board with cell-based meats? 
And one of the things I think we can do is move towards things that people have never had before. And so we're looking into like, well, there's all these really incredible types of seafood in other geographies that Americans are completely unfamiliar with. Uh, I was recently in Japan and I had hamo, which never seen in America before or since. It's unbelievably good. And it's like, what if we could bring that to America? What is that? It's a fish. Um, oh. <clears throat> so hamo is sort of like, my understanding is it's kind of a long fish, has lots of tiny bones. Basically what you do is you take like the, the um, blunt side of a knife and just crush all the bones. So it's sort of like this crunchy sushi experience that is like really good. And it's not like anything I've ever had. You eat the bones. <clears throat> you do. Oh wow. Um, they sort of create this crunch in, in the fish itself. I'm not 100% sure on how that works. Like I think it's uncooked. I'm pretty sure it's raw. But like we want to sort of move the conversation away from this is weird, scary technology and towards this is food. And, you know, for this podcast, obviously, people are like really in the weeds. This is sort of like inside baseball. But like it seems that like the messages that focus on like animal welfare, the vast majority of people really don't care. The messages that focus on environmentalism, the vast majority of people really don't care. We want to create food that doesn't compete on moral or ethical lines. We want food that is moral and is ethical, but competes on the same metrics people buy food on now. So like we want it to compete on taste, uh, price, convenience, and then slightly lower down nutrition. But I think that as long as we're trying to create imitations, this is going to be a very difficult path to walk in terms of getting this to people who wouldn't normally try vegan food. But if I can produce hamo in the middle of San Francisco, or I can produce kampachi in the middle of San Francisco, people are like, I've never had this. I want to try this weird new thing. And instead of the conversation being around like, oh, the food you normally eat is a moral nightmare or is horrifying for the environment, it's like, hey, there's this fish you've never thought of. Um, it exists in other cultures and like it's this incredible thing and there's this long history of like the way it's prepared and like the way it's been caught and we're just bringing it to you here and producing it locally. I think that conversation is much more appealing to meat eaters, much more appealing to people who are interested in food. So, you know, I know that the industry is sort of set on its path as is and I'm sure nobody's going to pivot based on like listening to me for like 45 seconds, but I think it's something that we should really consider, you know, working our way away from these environmental and animal welfare messages and more towards like food as a messaging and maybe new food is a way to actually accomplish that. Cool. And so you mentioned Japan. Um, I've seen that you've been in Japanese press. So you're bi- you guys are big in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, also on German TV. So you guys are, are big in Germany. Uh, tell me about what the rest of the world from your experience mm. thinks about cultured meat technology. It's an interesting thing. Um, we found that like animal welfare messages don't do great in Asia. Um, it's, it seems like the plant-based movement is a bit of a different thing over there. One of the interesting things in terms of messaging that we've needed to contend with is like um, misconceptions about like what this is and what this isn't. In America, I always have to say like what we do and I'm like, well, you know, we pull um, meat from an animal and we like uh, isolate the stem cells and just sort of like grow those out into large quantities. And I have to say to people, and I've learned that like you have to repeat yourself a bunch in order to get people to get it. I'm like, it's not the Impossible Burger. It's not vegetarian. It's not vegan. It's not made of plants. I know those are the same thing, but <clears throat> because people really do think that this is like a veggie burger or something like that. Um, but in Asia, it doesn't really seem that that's the misconception. In Asia, I have to do something else entirely because fish oftentimes, especially in China, is served as a whole animal that you pick things out of. Um, I have to say like, you know, we only grow the meat. Not the skin, not the organs, not the eyeballs, not the bones, just the meat. And it's just interesting how like people's minds, they have, I think, a much more difficult time. And I always get questions like, so the fish, they're swimming around in this bioreactor? Like it's, it's, it's much more, the, the mindset is not like, oh, this is a veggie burger. It's this is a whole animal um, and you're growing in a different way. 
So the messaging is different. And like, it's an interesting thing. It's something we're still really learning about me as someone who is not Japanese and not Chinese. Um, I need to sort of like figure out what messaging works best over there. Uh, it's a bit trial and error. In certain parts of Asia, we have a big problem with, with imitations. And so there's this concept that people will be bringing, you know, traditionally raised fish or just any fish you buy at a supermarket, uh, preparing it in a certain way that might make it look like minced meat or whatever, uh, but labeling it as cellular agriculture meat. Mm. Is that something you have thought of? And what would be a way to deter that? Or is it inevitable? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, there are things you could do to determine food safety. There are ways you can like take genetic footprints to sort of see on a scientific level, but I don't really see restaurants like involving that in their process until it becomes super duper cheap. Um, I'm not a big like Silicon Valley blockchain bro or anything, but um, blockchain is actually an interesting thing in terms of like food. Um, what's the term? Food tracking, I know is a better word for that. Basically, like supply chain logistics and like understanding where things go and where they come from. <clears throat> I think that, you know, we want to be something that is super ubiquitous as soon as we possibly can. At first, this will be a bit of a luxury thing. It'll be something that's really only served in high-end restaurants. I think at that point, yeah, imitations are probably going to be a problem. But the goal is to make this just way cheaper and way easier to get your hands on. So if anything, people would be faking the other stuff with this. And that's sort of the hope. Um, Especially because, you know, right now fish is like taken from the ocean. So you have like someone on a boat pulling it out of the water. <clears throat> they have to sail back to land, sell it to people at the docks, sell it to national distributors, selling it to local distributors, and then selling it to grocery stores and restaurants. So super long supply chain, a lot of middlemen who like really all want to cut, a lot of increased costs. So one of the advantages that we have is we're like, hey, we, this is basically vertical farming, but for me. We can produce this in the center of a city, cut down that supply chain, make it fresher, we can make it cheaper, we can cut out all those middlemen, cut out all those extra distributors. So hopefully those things combined with you know the technology itself can make it cheaper. Um, but yeah, I don't have a very good answer for you, basically. I don't know what would what would be useful at first to like actually create good like provenance and like like um, transparency in the supply chain and just making sure that cell-based meat is always like what we say it is um, and not like sort of an imitation just flown in from i don't know it's like all alaskan pollock or something some sort of cheap fish right. carp. It, but it's also funny to think about that perspective in the future we might be thinking like oh i'm getting authentic meat but really it's cell cultured meat mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so um yeah that's, that's that's pretty interesting so before we yeah. close um you guys play music mm -hmm. is there a band <clears throat> i wish um so we've brought all of our equipment over to the lab at this point. Um, we have like my bass amp over there, and my drums are up on the top. Brian's stuff is in the back. Um, you know, we wish we played a bit more than we do. We had all this musical equipment in, in our house. Uh, my co-founder and I share a house, and so like we, but we realized we like get off work super late. It's like eight or nine p.m. We don't want to wake up our neighbors and like screw up the neighborhood. So Murrayville is like kind of an industrial neighborhood, and so we've just had a lot more fun playing around here at night. Um, and we want to continue doing that. Um, in college, I was in a bunch of bands, and then in Taiwan, I played music for a bit. Um, and in New York, it's always just sort of been a part of it. I have like a bunch of siblings, they're all musicians. So it's always been like a huge part of my life, and it's just like a cool outlet uh, to get into. But uh, yeah, do you play? Do you want I, to join no, up? I don't play, but um, but it would be interesting to maybe see uh, see if, hear some Finless Foods music. So... <laughs> 
hopefully we can keep it separate you know yeah. uh, I uh, one of the bands that I was in in college was like a stoner metal band and so like I don't really want that associated <laughs> right. with this so much but like uh, hopefully we can have this be like a good practice space and like play in a few like DIY spaces around the East Bay as soon as we can cool yeah awesome well Mike thank you so much thanks Alex 